one of the reasons that I wrote this book is that I really feel that we're in a moment politically and culturally where huge changes are happening to the very fabric of our way of life and it's being abstracted. It's being talked about very conceptually as if it's happening to people far away when it's fact it's happening to uh, us. Welcome to Uncommon Decency. I'm your host, Francois. Today, we are very lucky to host Ben Judah. He's the director of the Transform Europe Initiative for the Atlantic Council. But most importantly for our conversation, he's the author of a recently published This is Europe, a compilation of short stories from all around the continent. It's a very special episode for us for a bunch of reasons. Firstly, because Uncommon Decency is a podcast that focuses a lot on the big politics of our continent for great moments in European history. And in contrast, this book is a supremely personal approach to what Europe is today, with interviews of extraordinary characters from across the continent, which I think shed light on all the joys and hardships of life across our continent. So this is not your typical common decency podcast. But the other reason this episode is special is because when we imagine what this podcast would look like back in June 2020, so basically three years now, we listed some names we would love to have on the show. We are very happy to report that we've crossed many of those names, including Benjamin Haddad, Luke Van Mieselaar, the historian Christopher Clark. But the last of Mohicans basically on that list was Ben Judah, whose thinking about Europe is both one of the most creative, but also one of the best informed on European affairs. So we are very proud to say that 92 episodes later, Ben is finally with us. Thank you, Ben. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and so I think, so I gave a kind of a brief, brief overview of your book, but you published This Is London in 2016, which was focusing on London's immigrants, and now you publish This Is Europe. Could you give us kind of a, the, the gist of what the book is about? So, you know, I wanted to write a book about how Europe was being transformed by these very powerful forces that were really changing the very fabric of our lives. And those are immigration, which is transforming every European city, but also countless aspects of rural life, given how important migrant labour is in uh, the rural economy. That's climate change, which is really transforming every field and every uh, traditional agricultural craft uh, across Europe as it advances um, in speed across the, across the continent and indeed the world. Next was technology. I really feel that our lives are being transformed in a profound way by how the algorithm has got it itself inside every human experience, every communication, and in a world where we increasingly uh, all meet online inside every uh, love affair. Next was supply chains. Behind any product, you can just reach out and touch one. There are these incredibly integrate, high-speed, uh, spooling supply chains that not 
uh, Europe together. And the last is war, not only the war in Ukraine, but also the war in Syria, both of which have profoundly politically and demographically changed Europe. Hmm. And I guess the question I have is, why did you want to to write it in this format? Why in this kind of, uh, I'm not going to say it's very personal, but you as the the author, you're kind of, you know, you're kind of taking, you're, you're kind of stepping behind all the people you're, you're interviewing for all of it. So when I heard the book was coming, I was kind of expecting, um, you know, to get maybe a bit more of what Ben Judah thinks, I don't know, maybe not a treaty about what Ben Judah thinks about Europe, but maybe kind of a bit more of a personal approach, mingling with those conversations about the way Europe is developing. Why did you kind of choose this format to tell that story? Well, I'll tell you why, actually. And this project grew out of a failed project in which I, first of all, I wanted to write a book about France. And I spent months in France, you know, crisscrossing the the country, going from the Alps to uh, Paris, to the south, to the west. And I wrote 50,000 words of a book that I hated. And I just hated this 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 narrator, this sort of great white male wandering around France, sort of meeting all these people. And I realised that I found it boring, I found it arrogant, and actually I decided what I really had come to dislike was the form itself, that I was just copying a form of travel writing from sort of late 20th century post-colonial uh, Britain, which I felt completely unsuited to writing about contemporary Europe. And that's for several reasons. The first first is, you, you just don't need me to tell you what Rome looks like, or Paris looks like, or Kiev looks like. We are bombarded every day by images of these places. Just open up Instagram right now. It's the summer right now. There'll be at least one or two of your friends posting pictures of themselves in Athens or in in Lisbon, you you will have seen non-stop images from the uh, war in Ukraine. There's only really one writer that can sort of pull it off these days, and that's Knausgaard. And it's just a mystery to me why Knausgaard even works, because by all forms of logic, it it shouldn't work uh, at all. So that's the first reason I decided I didn't want to do it in that voice because I just didn't like the voice that was coming out. And the second reason was that that form of writing implicitly turns everybody you meet into a subject or a character. You're evaluating them. Either you're just sort of making fun of them, which is, you know, or or sort of insulting them, which is what sort of V.S. Naipaul or sort of Bruce Chatwin did, or you're sort of elevating them and putting them on a pedestal like... In a, in a completely different way, like so say Paul Theroux would have done. But still, you're in control. And that's so different from what I actually love about being a journalist, which is that I travel around Europe, or I travel around London, or I travel around, you know, even one building. And I interview all kinds of people who tell me something completely different. And I wanted people to be able to pick up a book and have that experience of what it's like to listen to people with very different views uh, one after another. So um, my favourite story of all of them, I think I, I told you um, offline, was this love story between an uh, Austrian guy and a Turkish girl who met in a Erasmus in Amsterdam. And then he has to go to America. She stays, uh, she goes back to Turkey. And so there's kind of very complicated long distance relationship that breaks down. And as someone who's done his fair share of uh, long distance relation, well, one long distance relationship, 
um, I think it really resonated. It's kind of a testament how powerful the book is. But before we delve maybe more in the kind of the, the, the themes and topics that come back time and time again, um, could you maybe give us give us a bit of a teaser of what your what of your what is your favorite story? Maybe your two favorite stories that you you put together in the book. You know, well, you know, my kind of I was very inspired by old books when putting this together, and I really kind of committed to writing. This is Europe uh, when uh, the p- pandemic began, and like a lot of us, I found myself, you know, in quarantine, like reading the Decameron, where like Cassio gathers all these different uh, characters in a symbolic castle to tell a story about their time to outlast the plague, and I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. I want to gather all these characters and all these voices into. Um, you know, a, a symbolic castle of a book about modern Europe to tell their own story about the world uh, in which we're we're living, the Europe in which we're um, the Europe in which we're living. And also, I was very inspired by like my own kind of background. I've got a Jewish background, and for many years, I've studied with either a rabbi or with tutors, the Hebrew language, old and new. And I wanted to capture that principle from the Talmud, which is really a sort of library of. Uh, ancient Jewish texts in which one rabbi says something, another immediately interjects and contradicts him, a third jumps in and says that's absolutely wrong. And out of that, uh, a a kind of an appreciation of the topic is uh, arrived at. And that kind of principle that you have to look at something from lots of different points of view before realising what it is, was uh, extremely uh, important to me. So I'll give you an example of uh, a few chapters um, which work like this. So you said that your uh, favorite chapter. I'm really glad you said that. It's one of my chapters that touches me the most uh, as well as the story of Cezanne and Andy. You know, they meet at Erasmus in Amsterdam. You know, in an unusual inversion of the immigrant story, he actually moves to where she's uh, sort of living in Istanbul to build a, a life together. And for them, you know, Europe is this. Um, you know, continental expanse of transnational exchange and uh, and freedom through which kind of love uh, can can flourish. And I think that story is quite challenging to you know readers in in Britain who might view Europe through a certain leave lens and not appreciate that side of uh, of Europe. And that chapter is really you know in in dialogue, you could say, with. Um, the chapter about Yonut, the uh, Romanian uh, truck driver, and he is shuttling back across this enormous grid of motorways and delivery spots um, where, for him, Europe is this landscape of moral hypocrisy and exploitation like built off the backs of Eastern European uh, exploited uh, migrant labour, and he feels completely unseen and sort of used out by this system, which is the one supplying all of our products, which is ultimately what the single market is, what the uh, perspective. And then I take that that principle and I go further. So we see Berlin uh, twice. We see Berlin first through the eyes of um, Aboud, and Aboud is a Syrian uh, refugee. He's, you know, got severe trauma. His wife is deeply depressed and, and traumatized by their, their journey. And he spends his days, you know, traveling around uh, Berlin, delivering uh, Amazon packages. And he feels that he's found himself in the soft authoritarianism of the 
that actually there's no freedom here and that this uh this sort of half criminalized underworld he's found himself pushed into is not what he was searching for and he dreams in fact of leaving to uh dubai and going back to the middle east and that chapter is really in dialogue with the view on Europe that's provided by another Syrian refugee who's Haidar. Haidar's a gay man who leaves Syria and comes to Berlin. And for him, Berlin is this, this place of joy and freedom where he can finally uh, express himself as uh, a gay man and explore and reinvent himself through becoming a queer dancer, through embracing drag and all of those chapters talking to each other really is that kind of Talmudic uh, principle. You've got to listen to all of the rabbis talking from a different point of view before uh, drawing any conclusion. Topic to pressure on the, on the foreign policy level. Um, you've been talking a lot about Emmanuel Macron, a lot about what, what is post-Brexit UK's future. Um, and so I guess writing about Europe so much from a kind of high politics standpoint probably gives you a bit of a uh, assumptions about the continent and I guess the question I have is meeting all these people across the continents I guess what did you learn about Europe that you didn't know before it's really one of the reasons that I wrote this book is that I really feel that we're in a moment politically and culturally where huge changes are happening to the very fabric of our way of life and it's being abstracted it's being talked about very conceptually, as if it's happening to people far away, when it's fact it's happening to uh, us. And I also feel that we're living in a in a moment where, you know, lots of forces are conspiring to want to basically imprison us uh, in kind of VR goggles and cutting off all of the soft links and ties to the sort of people. Uh, around us. And I think we're living in a kind of modernity right now where people really like don't know what other people in their towns and cities or or continents are even doing uh, anymore, that you have exaggerated, uh, you know, hyper communication with people in your own direct network. And then you have very little clue who your, your neighbours are, let alone what people doing uh, for jobs or doing, um, you know, from other backgrounds are are doing. So I wanted to write a book that was really an antidote uh, to this. And, you know, one of the things that people ask me and they go, you know, we kind of know you as a politics writer. We know you as a policy commentator. We know you as, you know, we're, we're very surprised that you've written this book um, without a narrator and without a, a theory. And my kind of, uh, you know, question to them is, you know, uh, look at the subtitle. The subtitle is The Way We Live Now. And if we think about it, all of these great uh, political philosophies, be they conservatism or liberalism or socialism, what they really are are questions about how should we live? Like, what is the good way to live? And what all of the voices, all of the people in the book have in common is each of them is, each of them believes that, you know, his or her story says something very profound about uh, the modern European condition. And they're all asking themselves, and they're all asking all asking you, the reader, a, a moral question, which is, is this the way we want to live now? Hmm. And I have to say, when I, when I was reading it, I there, there's some happy stories, but there's a fair share of like, dark 
tragic stories or like at least, at least difficult stories where there's a sense that life can be rough and tough and the routine is a little crushing. So, I, I mean, uh, again, then you, you selected who you wanted to, to talk to and you selected the stories. And But is that something kind of underestimated, the sense that people people each have a kind of side of a kind of tragic side of them? Well, you know, people often say this about the books that I write, and that's really not what I I feel about them. And I think that the way you ask that question is great, actually, is I do think that every every life has sort of a tragic and a kind of sad uh, side to it, and it's very important that those things are part of the part of the story. We're used to. I think the reason that these stories, which for both me and the people telling them, are you know really stories of joy like one of them's a story about how a couple finally manage yeah. to have children one of them's a story about how a man makes it to berlin and finds himself as a gay man and as a uh, and as an artist like one of them is a story about how a romanian truck driver finds a girlfriend yeah. uh, on the road and the reason that people think that these are sort of sad stories or like tough stories is because you know we're living in a sort of instagrammed reality where people are only getting the posts they're not getting all of the story and all of the anxiety and the struggle often comes up to you know achieving these very very simple things i think we all know that from our own our own lives and i think we're just used to to sort of read it we're just living in a world right now where you know social networks and increasingly the sort of decayed form that journalism is today is so sort of overwhelmed by individual or by corporate PR or personal spin. I think we've forgotten that. Um, I guess you you talk about this a little bit. um, I forget if it's in the book or an interview, but I think there's an American dream, which is pretty well identified. But what do you think is the kind of European dream? Is there defining traits of of Europeans that you you find in, in your book time and time again? I think that's sort of piece of political sloganeering. I'm, I'm not really very interested in it. So, like these concepts of, you know, a specifically kind of European dream or a specifically uh, American dream. Those are not really sort of ways of looking at the world that come out sort of naturally out of conversations with with people. But there is something kind of elemental here which I think is is very important. And it actually made me go back into you know what I really know that you guys are interested in on the on the pod. It made me really go back into. You know, my assumptions about uh, political theory itself. I, I decided I wanted to take the migrant journey myself to really understand it. And I found myself uh, crossing the Alps for a kind of mountain uh, sort of pass late at night of a group of African migrants who were forced to take this route into France to avoid the police blocking the sort of other routes because they were entering uh, I- illegally. And at one brief moment, I was sort of handed a, a sort of young child and told to sort of carry her on my shoulders by a sort of exhausted uh, father who felt he could sort of barely go on. And I had this sudden flash of remembering um, Hegel's description of seeing Napoleon venture out on reconnaissance at Jena. And, you know, Hegel, you know, the philosopher who felt that history is really the story of freedom becoming conscious of itself felt that he'd seen the Weltgeist, that he'd seen the spirit of history on horseback leaving Jena. And I really felt that I had actually on my shoulders the spirit of history, which is this quest for for freedom. And that one of the things that I think 
all of the stories in the book and these two great trends in the book have in common is this quest for freedom. There are millions of people coming from the South and the Middle East who are coming to Europe in that quest for freedom. And then there's also these wars for freedom and these revolutions, you know, most of which are in the book at least fail, but are still, you know, part of what Europe is at, at the moment in Eastern Europe, which are the quest for freedom. And then if you look at what everybody who is feels themselves deeply enracinated in the soil and in tradition and in these sort of the villages of Europe. You know, these so many of these stories are also these quests for for personal, you know, freedom. You take the story of Jean-Marc, who's a sort of multi-generational winemaker in, in Burgundy. And that story is really about freedom. It's about his dream of being able to you know, not be yet another generation winemaker and to be an actor. Can he make it to Paris? Can he escape uh, Merceau? It's about actually the limits of his freedom and how he finds his freedom despite those constraints. I think that that's really, when you mentioned dream, I think that that for me is the the answer to, to that question. But, you know, I'd be very reticent of giving an answer as if I'm a sort of 1950s American propagandist trying to speak over the Iron Curtain to say the European dream is, you know, a two-bedroom house and a, and a car and, uh, you know, an iPhone. I think that that's, I think that that is, uh, that is um, unrealistic. To go back to the, the question of immigration, which is quite central in your book, um, I haven't counted how many people are from kind of immigrant backgrounds, but I think it's fair to say there's a, there's a fair bunch of them. I think three of them come from Syria, so it's kind of a common thread in, in your story. Um, I guess maybe the question I have is, in contrast, there's maybe kind of fewer stories about what David Goodhart would talk about, would, could describe as the somewheres, you know? Uh, it's quite focused on the, on the anywheres, those who have kind of travelled, who have moved quite a lot, um, and maybe those who um, have always stayed in the same village. You know, there's the example of Jean-Marc who wants to go to Paris and to study study theatre, but in the end ends up going back to uh, to Bourgogne. But a lot of them have this kind of track the story about mobility, the rest of it. Um, I guess why did you why did you kind of chose to focus a bit more on the kind of mobile aspect of Europe and a bit less on the sedentary aspect of Europe? Well, I just think that David's um, breakdown. There's a lot of David's work that I kind of really admire, but I think it's sort of silly. Like, am I a somewhere or, or in anywhere? I feel like deeply rooted in Jewish tradition, in an approach to the Torah and to kind of Jew- and to Jewish identity and law. But he would class me an, as a, an anywhere because I've got uh, I've like travelled around and have sort of multiple citizenships. It's a very kind of crude uh, sort of slogan that should have stayed there, I think. And you know, one of the things. You know, I kind of think I'd reject that, actually, that it's a story of uh, anywhere. It's like, you know, there's a story of, you know, trying to bring life to a Portuguese village. There's a story of, you know, what it's like being a Russian man, like working in, you know, the the gas fields of, uh, of northern Russia. It's, you know, like what, you know, presumably by like David's... Um, you know, breakdown, which is really what he what he means is just are you sort of working class or sort of transnational or upper class? Surely, you know, sort of Romanian truck driver like sort of Yonut at least would appear in the elections in Romania, like very much a sort of somewhere uh, to him. 
So I, I kind of, I sort of, uh, I sort of reject that. I definitely chose to kind of, you know, what I was really trying to get across in the in the book were these sort of themes, and the themes were the themes of change that are changing the fabrics of our lives, and those are immigration, climate change, you know, war, um, supply chains, and technology, and that that leads to you know, there being more immigrant voices in the book than maybe a sort of precise analysis of, um, you know, the sort of demographic data might might give us. But that really kind of comes to the question of, like, what is Europe? And, yeah. you know, Europe's not a ethnic community, because then why isn't Australia part of Europe? Like, it's not a, you know, religious community. There are more Catholics and Protestants uh, in Africa and in the Americas than there are in uh, uh, in Europe. It's not a linguistic community. There are more French speakers that live in uh, live in Africa. You only have to kind of walk around modern London or even like modern Tallinn to kind of see that that's not the case. And that's because Europe's not only about the f- the past; it's also about the the future and what makes somebody or a country European is that they feel that their fate, that their destiny is is here and is tied up with these groups of peoples and territories that really share a, a common a common fate and that for me really is european and that's why you know istanbul and moscow are in europe but sydney and auckland are not in europe and it's a question of geography and how geography determines fate but it's also a bit more than that and i think that europe is a sort of community of destiny or a community of, of fate. So I was asking a very interesting question earlier, which is which characters in my book feel European? And, you know, one of them is sort of Marjub. He's, you know, born in Tunisia, but came as a young child to to France. And Marjub, like, really, you that freedom that Europe had on offer for him, he used it to um, become a Salafist imam. But he feels very European. Like his future's in France. He's deeply involved in local politics. His vision for his children is in France. But take Aboud working for Amazon in Berlin. He doesn't feel European because he wants to leave. And he wants to leave this continent and this sort of way of life that, you know, he doesn't like. He doesn't like being trapped as an Amazon delivery guy in uh, Berlin. He wants to kind of go and work in, uh, in Dubai. So that really comes to me, which is that, sense of identity being about the future like we talk a lot i think we're trained to think about our sense of identity being the past but it's not only that it's also the present and the future if you want to listen to the full version of that episode you can join us on patreon where we go more into what is europe who are europeans and the whole question of immigration and that how how that's going to shape the continent for the years to come Thank you, Ben. I, I hope it works really well. Again, fascinating book. Uh, again, I, I, my favorite story was about this uh, Austro, Austro-Turkish girl. And, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed of saying it really got me to my emotional edge. And oh, I think that's a, a sign of how good a writer you are and, and how well chosen those, those stories are. So thank you so much and wish you all the best for, for the book. Thank you. So, Ben is out. Um, Jorge, unfortunately, you couldn't make it to the chat in person, but you caught up with the conversation. Any thoughts? 
Well, you know what? I, I'm I'm actually elated that you were able to, to um, sit down with Ben and have a wide ranging conversation about his excellent book. I, I have to confess, and many of our view, uh, many of the people in our audience will be aware that Ben Judah has been on our has been a target of ours for a while now, even before he joined the Atlantic Council when he was a freelancer at well, actually he was working I think at the Hudson Institute on their yep. kleptocracy initiative before. Yep. But even before he before he was working at any think tank, when he was writing, when he was promoting his last book, This is London, we were we had our eyes set on him. He was um he was a he was of high interest to us. And the reason for that is that he writes and cares about many of the same topics we cover here, Europe in, in terms of culture, you know, whether or not there's such a thing as European culture. I think, he's, I think this is one of the lead motifs of his book. Uh, and just to get started with, I think the most sort of contentious point of the entire episode, which I thought was excellent, again, really good interview. But the most contentious point, I think, was when you asked him, you know, everyone talks about the American dream. Everyone knows what the American dream is about. You're essentially... You know, you arrive to America where, from wherever you're from and you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can make something of yourself by just working hard and playing by the rules. That's the American dream. Everyone knows what it is. And you asked him, you said, is there such a thing as a European dream? And he was dismissive. He said, no, that's just political sloganeering. There's no such thing. And actually, I think that whether or not the majority of the citizenry and whether or not the majority of the interviewees that Ben Judah has got on this book um believe it or not i think in reality europe really is offering something distinctive which is not exactly the same as the us or canada or australia or singapore or hong kong i think europe is essentially about a good balance between economic dynamism and a welfare state i don't think any other country really quite has that i mean obviously you have to you have several tiers of countries within that right you've got the wealth the nordic states are 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 really at the forefront and at the vanguard of this. Um, uh, but, but I think you kind of have this, this compact, you have this, this social bargain that has emerged in Europe since the, the end of the world war. And increasingly as prosperity has been trickling down to the, to the population. And you kind of have this, you kind of have this, um, this European dream, really, I think we shouldn't be afraid of using the term. It's, you know, um, why do, hordes of Middle Eastern, middle-aged Middle Eastern migrants make it all the way from, you know, Syria through Turkey and then Serbia and then Hungary and want to reach Germany or Sweden. What is it they're after? Well, they're obviously after our welfare state, but it's not a welfare state like, like Cuba, obviously. It's not a welfare state like Venezuela. It's not, it's not a socialist land. It's, it's a capitalist land, but it's one that combines economic dynamism and the freedom of enterprise with a certain degree of, uh, you know, social protection. So does that does that ring? Does that sort of strike a chord with you, Francois? Do you, do you seem you seem to in the interview and people will go back and listen and they'll be able to check. You seem to think that there is actually such a thing as a European dream. What, what's your take? Um, first of all, I think you're right to point out that Ben Judah is, you know, some of kind of honorific, decent commoner in the sense that he's been wrestling a lot of the questions which have been in the heart of the podcast. I mention it in the introduction, but a lot of the questioning we have is, what makes us European? What is Europe? Um, and the other day, I, I shared a quote from uh, Umberto Eco on our, on our Twitter account, saying the language of Europe is translation, and Ben is, is, is English but speaks flawless French, 
he's 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 um, studied French for a long time. I think he's lived in France a fair bit. So he's also been the kind of space that European space of translation. Um, and I think translation, if you go back to the Latin root, it goes back to the idea of transmission. I think there's something something very strong about the history of Europe, the sense that we've got this this legacy behind us, which which is one where very early on we 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 found the sacrality of the individual partly through the teaching of, of the Greeks, through the teaching of the Catholic Church and so on. So um, I think if there is a European germ, it's one that is kind of more steeped in history than the American version, which is kind of very future-oriented. Um, and Europe seems to be more, a bit more about tradition, about um, the sense of legacy that we need to, to continue. Um, something else I wanted to talk about a little bit. So Ben has this kind of very optimistic vision of immigration as being a way for Europe to add dynamism and energy to it. And he talks quite beautifully about the, this exhausted father who gives his, his exhausted son for Ben to carry in the sense that he, he's like Hegel and seeing the, the world spirit, except the world spirit instead of being on a, on a horse is, is on the Ben's back. I, I, I understand where this is coming from. I guess I'm also a little worried, and he, he mentions it, you know, it's not like the, the, the book is is um, is ignorant of those facts, but there's also a lot of tensions that have emerged from immigration. It's not Ben saying that, it's all the people he interview, and, you know, even the the Uber driver, not the Uber driver, the, the deliver, delivery guy in, in Berlin will talk quite candidly about the ethnic tensions that have emerged in some parts of Berlin, for example. Um, and you're talking about the welfare state, and that's what made me think of it, is... I think we know since Robert Putnam that when you get kind of increasing increasing diversity, the rest of it, it creates a lot of strain on especially the social model of a country where people feel that they um, no longer feel that they all belong to the same community and so they no longer want to pay taxes to pay for other people. They feel they don't believe belong in the same community. So I guess that kind of that kind of tension we, we, we tease a little bit um, in our conversation, the patient section at the end, but it was interesting to get his thoughts on that. One last thing which I want to talk about is talking about this kind of um, European dream. And Ben talked about kind of European culture, was this, which, which was the Europe of the mind was being made around culture, talking about artists, podcasters, Instagrammers, the rest of it. But to be honest, it's something we, we talked about in our episodes on the Habsburgs. When, we'll look, when we look back at the Habsburgs, we, look, we see a, a political entity that has collapsed and no longer exists. But we can still look at the culture, at the, the, the great author, the great literary uh, pieces of the time. You know, when we think of the, of the Ottoman sorry, Ottoman Empire, the, the Habsburg Empire, we think of uh, Stefan Zweig, for example, or, or Roth. And I'm not sure who are the Zweigs of, of our era. Maybe I'm too conservative in my taste in arts, the rest of it. But I'm not sure there's, there's as much of a, as, as a moment in, in European culture of a moment that there was in the Habsburgs, for example. So that's something that got me thinking that, um, when, when I was talking with, with Ben. Something we want to talk about before wrapping up. Um, Silvio Berlusconi died um, the morning that we are recording on. And we are kind of trying and, and wrap around it and think about what we can do. And, and so I think the best format we agreed to is kind of use this out a little bit to talk about, about Berlusconi, the transformation he was, the impact he's had. The controversies, of course, are attached to the man. Um, and yeah, Jorge, you had some interesting thoughts on on this, on the good old Silvio Berlusconi. Yes, well, I think the um, I read a really interesting piece by uh, a friend of the show, actually Frank Ferretti, whom we interviewed mm. 
on Qatargate. He had a really interesting piece out in Spiked where he traces the story of Silvio when he enters politics. He's obviously a very successful tycoon uh, who entered, I, I, I believe, in the, the early 90s when the traditional parties of the center-right and the center-left, right, the socialists and the Christian Democrats, were widely discredited. Both parties were stained by corruption. And Berlusconi started this center-right party, admittedly center-right, centrist in outlook, but also very almost you know, anti-elitist, uh, sort of contrarian. A casual. And, uh, say it again? A casual party. Yes, kind of a casual party, not, not so anchored in, in firm intellectual ground, but really sort of a protest vote against the establishment. And, um, and I think what was really interesting about his rise uh, through the political landscape was that he brought with him a new sort of way of understanding the separation between someone's life and their political involvement, right? I mean, he has been, Berlusconi has essentially been ensnared in, in, in scandal after scandal for all yeah. of his political career. Um, and Frank Ferrady in this piece says, you know, he was the Trump before Trump. Yeah. He was the, there, there's a little bit of Berlusconi in Trump. There's a little bit of Berlusconi in Maloney. Uh, there's a little bit even in uh, other populist leaders. Um, but what I think so inter- what I th- what I think was so interesting is that in his final one of his final political feats was to help in a decisive way Georgia Maloney become prime minister. I mean, I I, I forget about the arithmetic, Francois. You're going to have to fact check me on this. But the coalition that currently that currently runs Italy would not have been able to form without Forza Italia's votes, right? Hmm. They were decisive, I think. They were decisive, and uh, along with obviously Lega and Fratelli. But I think he's someone that you know we we owe we owe him just a few words uh, about why he was he was a an an epoch defining European politician. I think it's another it's another case of you're you're right. He's got forty five seats in, or he had forty five seats in Parliament, which were quite quite important in making sure um, yes, uh, Meloni had a majority. Um, I think he's a clear example of Italy having always been this political lab for political experiences. I mean, you look at the kind of mass Christian Democrat party that we saw in Italy, there were pioneers of that kind of space, same for a kind of mass communist party, again, there were pioneers. Fascism, of course, was one of the big political experiments of the uh, 20th century. If you look even back uh, a bit closer, Five Star Movement is something which is kind of radically new, and you haven't really found a, an equivalence in, in Western democracy since. Um, the kind of Salvini Meloni pivot away from kind of Euroscepticism was ahead of its time, and we're seeing, for example, Marine Le Pen now being kind of much more moderate on, on the EU. Um, and Berlusconi is another example of that, of a kind of a catch-all centre-right populist who you know, didn't have a kind of firm ideological mooring in the way that the Christian Democrats used to have. And he emerged in a kind of period of chaos where the two big parties the, on the right and on the left were tarnished by scandals. He used his kind of media image. He was the owner of AC Milan, with whom he won, I think, a few Champions League. So he had this kind of immense popularity outside of politics, which he translated into politics. Another thing of also his legacy has been mooring Italy in in a kind of very pro-Russian foreign policy position. And I think even even quite recently, while Meloni was trying to pivot Russia, uh, Italy away from Russia and have a kind of more traditional transatlantic 
uh, NATO, pro-EU, uh, more centrist position, Berlusconi was still trying to steer away um, Italy from being too harsh on sanctions and all the rest of that. So it's interesting to see the, the, the legacy he's going to have. I'm not sure will be that, that, that strong on policy itself. Um, and now with, with Meloni pivoting away from Russia, that aspect will also leave. But something that will stay is this kind of, he was a pioneer in this kind of idea that media figures, people with extraordinary popularity outside of politics could translate that and bank it into the world of politics. Um, yeah, and, and a very funny man, a very controversial man, obviously with a all the sex scandals, the the misogyny, the rest of that, that that's also part of the that's also part of the character. It comes with um, in a bundle. Yeah, and I think just just to highlight, you you you're absolutely right about stressing his view that Europe should reach some sort of modest vivendi with Russia instead yeah. of sidelining Russia and and really um, surrounding it with with uh, you know and surrounding it with with uh, with NATO. So, um, so actually, if this is, um, this, this is, uh, this is the end of the outro, uh, just want to thank, uh, all of our listeners for coming back to us episode after episode. We're really grateful for their, their support and their time spent with us. We would really encourage, uh, everyone to become a patron subscriber for as little as, uh, the price of a sandwich a month. You can donate, uh, four five, six quid, uh, or dollars or euros to the podcast so that we can keep uh, producing uh, content as high quality as possible. And, um, and don't forget to uh, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever pl- uh, platform of choice you, you, you happen to use. And don't forget that.
if you want to listen to the full version of our episode, you can join us on Patreon, where we go more into what is Europe, who are Europeans, and the whole question of immigration and that how how that's going to shape the continent for the years to come. Thank you so much, Jorge. Thanks again for Ben for joining us on the podcast, and see you all next week. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>